0: This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. My guest is one of the most recognized faces and voices in sports broadcasting history.
1: And hello again. I'm Jim Lampley. We at HBO welcome you and the world of big time boxing back to Japan to test the theory that ticket buyers on foreign shores will purchase what Americans seem increasingly unwilling to shell out for. Apparent mismatches for Mike Tyson in defense of his heavyweight crown.
0: Four-time Emmy winner and a film producer, Jim Lampley is best known for the 30 years he spent as the blow-by-blow announcer on HBO World Championship Boxing. He was a fixture on ABC and then NBC Sports. He's covered all the major events, including the Super Bowl, Major League Baseball, college football and basketball, the USFL even, Wimbledon and the Indy 500. When you think of Jim Lampley, I think of the Olympic Games. He covered 14 Olympic Games, most recently, the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, China. Yes, Jim Lampley is our guest on Sports Jam. Jim, great to see you, and thanks for joining us. My privilege. Pleasure to be with you. Jim was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2015. He writes, hosts, and executive produces his own studio boxing shows, The Fight Game with Jim Lampley on HBO. But just recently, uh, he is back ringside. It was announced that Jim will be the new lead play-by-play voice of Triller Fight Club and will begin his multi-fight deal with the historic June 19th Triller Fight Club card at Miami's Lone Depot Park. We talked about it during our last sports jam with Franchon Cruz Desern. And now that's going to feature both the women's undisputed and men's undisputed world title fights for the first time. So Jim, Everybody knows you as the voice of boxing. Why did you decide to go with Triller Fight Club now? And does it have anything to do with this upcoming card?
2: Well, um, I haven't called a fight for two and a half years. And um, initially that had to do with HBO's removal from the boxing scene when uh, AT&T purchased Time Warner and their executives made clear that they weren't interested in pursuing boxing. Uh, And, you know, at that point, I was without a microphone. And, uh, and it took a while to sort out all of the uh, business details relative to that. And uh, then you had COVID, which uh, affected everything and uh, probably affected to some degree, um, the personnel outlook of those streaming services who were uh, doing boxing at the time. And in recent months, it began to become clear to me that Uh, an offer might be forthcoming for me to go back to calling fights. So at that point, my attitude became, all right, where is legitimacy? Where's a jumping off point and a platform where I can do something that is meaningful from the get-go? And Triller made this offer not too long ago. They were very decisive and clear in what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was to communicate legitimacy. That's really the key word. And the key element here, you've already mentioned the women's championship fight, which will unify titles in a division. Um, But the main event attraction is Teofimo Lopez against George Cambosas. And Lopez defeated Vasily Lomachenko. I spent many years on HBO and the fight game, helping to build and develop Lomachenko's reputation and validating him as the number one pound for pound fighter in the sport. To see somebody so easily dismantle him uh, was surprising, maybe even shocking. And and you could see the natural skill and comfort uh, and uh, ring generalship and all that stuff that Teofimo Lopez brought to uh, that particular enterprise. So when Triller came along and said, okay, we want to make you an offer, and we really want to try to get you on board in time to call uh, the main event involving Teofimo Lopez. I said, let's do it. Come fight night, everybody's gonna know what I'm all about. It's a takeover. West Side Sky, i over. I've been looking for a legitimate platform. Lopez is potentially not just a next big thing, but possibly the next big thing, Uh, and and I'm ready to go. He's in a crowded division at 135 pounds. He could move up to 140 if he wins this fight and face Josh Taylor, who just unified the 140-pound division above him. And, of course, looming in the picture is the possibility of a rematch with Lomachenko. All those things considered, I felt like I needed to take this chance.
0: You know, when you hear Jim Lampley talk, you know he's best known, as I said, the blow by blow announcer on HBO world championship boxing for more than three decades. And you see, he's still in the game. He's still up to date with what's going on and that's exciting, but I want to take you back just a little bit. If I could, I want to take you back to February 25th, 1964. You are 14 years old. What happened during that night? So
2: uh, I was originally from Hendersonville, North Carolina. And probably the single narrative line I've most frequently uttered in my whole life is my father died when I was five years old. And after my father died, my mother very constructively and aggressively did everything she could to immerse me in the things that she knew my father would want to do with me and would want me to know about that. And and one of the first things she did was to take me to someone else's house where she was going to a party march me down a hallway and sit me down in front of a tall, small television set and tell me you're going to watch the Friday night fights. It's Sugar Ray Robinson against Bobo Olson. It's their second fight. This is the most important fighter in the world, Sugar Ray Robinson, and you're going to see his amazing skills. And whatever you don't know about boxing, Don Dunphy is going to tell you uh, in the next hour and a half or so. So I got started watching boxing at age six. Uh, And and my mother's last time before she left the room was, uh, you're doing this because if your father was still alive, this is what you and he would be doing together. Uh, So I became a boxing fan. And then eventually, uh, she moved us out of Hendersonville, North Carolina and to Miami. And Cassius Clay was already my biggest hero in sports. There is a lot that goes into that. Some of that was my mother having a very strong chemical resistance to racism. And the fact that Cassius Clay was portraying uh, an anti-racist stance very aggressively, more aggressively than any American athlete uh, up to that point, that made him an ideal sort of central hero for me. And um, in 1963, uh, I began to read in the Miami Herald and the Miami News that uh, there was a possibility of a championship fight being created between Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. and Oh, by the way, if it took place, a likely venue was the Miami Beach Convention Center. So I began saving up car washing and lawn mowing money uh, and did so for months to buy a ticket for that fight. One ticket, there's no way my mother and I and could have afforded two, but I saved up enough money to buy one ticket, which in my memory was either 100 or $150. I don't know for sure because stupidly, I didn't save it. Uh, but I wasn't so stupid that I didn't know who was going to win the fight. And uh, and when Cassius Clay knocked Sonny Liston out, well, we drove back to our tract house community in Southwest Miami, and I got up on the roof and started yelling, I've upset the world, I'm the greatest of all time, et cetera, et cetera, until my mother eventually said, come back down, uh, you don't want to get us all arrested here. Uh, and then two days later, Cassius Clay told a gaggle of reporters on a street corner in Miami that he was now a citizen of the Nation of Islam and his name was going to be Muhammad Ali. And I can't tell you how many months it took for me to digest and inculcate that. Uh, That was a very difficult transition for me. But eventually I learned that it wasn't my identity. No matter how big a fan I was, it was his identity. And uh, so So yes, and the the connection here that you're already feeling because I can tell you're really hip is that on February 25, 1964, I watched as a live spectator the fight that was at that time indisputably called the biggest upset in the history of boxing. On February 10, 1990 in Tokyo, Japan, sitting at ringside for HBO at Buster Douglas's knockout win over Mike Tyson, I called the fight that succeeded that one as the biggest upset in boxing history. So, so there are large elements of my life and that whole story is probably most central in establishing that there's a kind of a destiny at play here. I do the things that destiny has laid out for me to do. It isn't me doing that. You know, it's some other force in the universe. And I've felt that in virtually everything that's ever happened to me
0: in my sports commentary career. Jim, that also shows What kind of love your mother had for you at that time, knowing that, you know, without your dad, she was going to make sure that his presence was felt in your life early on? Well, and it wasn't
2: just the boxing, okay? It was Hendersonville High School football games on Friday nights against Brevard and Waynesville. It was the ability to go to Southwest Miami High School football games once we got to Miami by myself without her needing to go in and and chaperone me, not worried about me, et cetera, et cetera. It was stretching her budget to buy tickets in the upper deck, se- uh, season tickets for University of Miami football games so that I could go watch a quarterback named George Myra leading the Miami Hurricanes against named football teams. And oh, by the way, when I was chosen out of a 432-person national talent hunt to be the first College age reporter, the first person on the sidelines of college football with a camera and a microphone in 1974. The audition interview that got me that job was with George Myra, who was at that point in one of the ancillary football leagues. Uh, Maybe it was the AFL. I don't remember for sure. He was sort of on his last legs as a professional quarterback. They called me and started to try to tell me who George Myra was so that I could go interview him. And I said, no, 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 you don't have to tell me. I have an idea who George Myra is. I was probably the only American football fan at that moment in August of 1974, who still had a number 10 University of Miami, green, orange, and white George Myra jersey hanging in my closet. So again, destiny has played the central role along with, as you very, very accurately point out, my mother. Uh, and the love she showed, the sacrifices she made, and the fidelity she showed to the notion of who my father would want me to be. It's
0: really a tremendous story. And then you think about, you've already referenced the fight in Tokyo in 1990. And isn't it something that most people say is your most famous call, is simple and direct, as you have said, and I'm going to have you repeat it, but it also holds true to today. It still is. What?
2: Well, I think there are two very famous calls, and we'll get to that. But yes, that night, and again, you've been watching for nine-plus rounds. It's no accident what's happening in the fight. I say to people to this day, that was a style fight. That was about the fact that Buster Douglas was taller, longer, could bring the right hand over the top where the shorter fighter wouldn't necessarily see it uh he had basketball type athletic skills that whole combination was very difficult for mike at that time so you can see it coming this has been an inspired
1: courageous performance by a man whose mother has died within the past month whose son's mother is battling a difficult kidney ailment who had every reason to come into this bout depressed and downtrodden chosen by no one to have a chance of getting out of the first few rounds and he has thoroughly dominated mike tyson with the exception of the moment when he went
2: down. So I've had a little while there to think about, okay, how are we gonna sum all this up? What am I going to say? And at the moment when Tyson went down and the count begins, and it's very clear that Mike's not going to get up, a voice in the back of my head says, simplest is best. Don't overreach. Don't try for too much. So the call is Mike Tyson has been knocked out. Uh, No embellishment no uh, grandiose uh, proclamation, simply Mike Tyson had been knocked out. And that that worked because it was the last thing anyone had expected to see at that moment in that fight.
0: And also your voice, you know, it just brings it home. You didn't embellish, but it's just your voice. There's something in your voice that provides truth and excitement to sports like, you know, almost nobody else. And when when you think about that, you say, you know, it was the, let's go ahead and call it biggest upset in the history of heavyweight championship fights. It, it still is.
2: Well, it, I had sat there in the ninth round, one round before, thinking to myself, oh my God, the first live prize fight you ever went to was at that time, the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And now you are calling the fight, which will dislodge it as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. So I was already placing myself within that moment as we got to that point. And oh, by the way, with apology for stepping away just to fill out what I said before, the other very famous call is it happened, it happened. And that's George Foreman knocking out Michael Moore in Las Vegas to become the oldest heavyweight champion in history, to regain the title that he had lost to Ali uh, decades before, et cetera, et cetera. And that's another one. That, that sort of came out of the blue. That was less planned than Mike Tyson has been knocked out because I couldn't be sure that George was going to knock him out. But I had, and you've probably heard this story, you're very well versed. I had spent months at ringside with George, who was my expert commentator on HBO boxing telecasts, saying to him, George, how in the world are you going to deal with Moore? He's a mover. Evander Holyfield couldn't find him in the ring. And Evander has much better feet than you do. This isn't really going to work very well for you. And George said to me over and over and over, very flatly, Jim, you watch. Somewhere in the late rounds, somewhere in the latter part of the fight, he's going to come and stand in front of me and let me knock him out. Never forget the words. He's going to let me knock him out. And if you watch the video, I mean, it, it couldn't be more graphic. Moore comes and stands in front of him and lets George knock him out. Down, go I'm sitting there thinking, all right, why didn't you plan for this? Why (laughs) why didn't you dream up some meaningful line that is the perfect caption to this? Why didn't you believe your buddy is basically what I'm asking myself. And what comes out of my mouth is it happened. It happened. And luckily, it sounds matter of fact. It sounds spontaneous, which it was. Um, It's probably the single line I'm most proud of, along, of course, with uh, Mike Tyson has been knocked out.
0: The George Foreman brand changed forever. The people's opinion of George Foreman, even though as a commentator, they started to change and, and started to love him. But he became one of the most beloved people after after the big comeback. I mean, he was when he was at his at his best, he was considered the enemy at times, right?
2: Well, he
0: was he was groomed early
2: on by surly alienated antisocial people okay Liston's camp the people who had been around Sonny uh some of the people who were dealing with racial prejudice and its uh outgrowths within boxing at that time they gave George a certain kind of attitude that he used in the ring and out during his first career and then when he went away from the sport for a long time and he spent 10 years more or less in exile from it uh I think somewhere in that period of time he thought to himself you know what that wasn't me that that really was not who I want to be or who I want to be seen as and he came back as the cheerful hamburger selling uh grinning everybody's best friend kind of guy and that personality reversal was in its way compelling and surprising to people um and then gradually he started to build his career toward this you know inevitable title shot because He's one of the most beloved people in the culture. By this, point. that smile is selling Meineke mufflers. It's selling hamburgers. It's you know, it's all over popular culture, kind of the way Shaq is now. By the way, Shaq has inherited uh, George's role with uh, within the culture and and more power to him. He, you know, he's he's brilliant at it. But uh, so George came back and changed his persona entirely and got ready for a fight that almost nobody thought he could win. But what I think people underestimated about George in his second career is that he was a scientist. He was totally into the craft and technique of boxing. I remember the night that he described to me how he had in his arsenal five different jabs. There was the setup jab. There was the knock you into next week telephone pole coming out of window jab. There was a jab that looked like a hook, et cetera, et cetera. And he told me how he could use any one of those five jabs to set up the right hand or the uppercut uh, when and if he wanted to. Well, I think I think most people, even sincere boxing fans, didn't realize that George was at that level of craft and analysis. I began to feel it sitting next to him at ringside. Sometimes he would say something totally counterintuitive, and I'm thinking, where in the world did that come from? But at the end of the day, he he's an incredibly smart man. He knew what he was doing. George is on my list, by the way. I'm in academia now, teaching class at the University of North Carolina. George is still on my list as one of the five smartest people I've ever known. His level of wisdom and innate genius, particularly with relation to the, the craft and technique of boxing, is off the board. Uh, and it'll blow your mind.
0: You say, what What is Jim Lampley teaching at UNC Chapel Hill? Evolution of Storytelling in American electronic news media, which basically takes you from 1920 to 2020. And during the pandemic, I've heard you say, it's, it was the perfect time to have that class because your students were able to see it and live it as it changed.
2: It was almost as though the pandemic came
0: along as a,
2: an exhibit uh, for my class to see how the construction of the story uh, the systematic delivery of the story, the way it lands with the audience, all of those things can be affected by institutional factors, personnel factors, uh, on-air personality, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's really what the class is all about. The class is about um, how do news stories originate and eventually get propagated and what happens along the way to affect or change their content, can be a business circumstance, can be a technological circumstance. Perfect example that I always point out on the first day of the class. How did I become the college age reporter on the sidelines of ABC Sports college football telecast? The irony of that is that it was 1972, ABC Sports was televising the Munich Olympics, uh, 10 Israeli athletes were kidnapped and held hostage by black September terrorists and reporters like Howard Cosell and Peter Jennings were pushing the control room. How do we get closer? How can we get a better picture from that balcony outside the, uh, uh, the room where the hostages are being held? How can we get more detail with which to tell the story? And during that process, ABC Engineering learned that radio frequency, microphones, and cameras would do things that they didn't know they would do. Mm. They learned that signals would go around uh, concrete walls, that signals would go around metal barriers, that they could gather sound and pictures that they never dreamed they could get under extreme circumstances. They were learning that. So when they came back from Munich early in 1973, there was a meeting in New York among the sports executives the news executives and the engineering executives and the question was now that we know this what can we do with it and the first thing that came from that was well you could you could put a reporter on the sidelines of a football game uh and institutionally you couldn't have done that with the nfl at that time the nfl ran its own game in a certain way and you weren't going to be able to do that but oh by the way it made more sense where at college football where all of the pageantry and the surrounding uh, stuff and the cheerleaders and the marching band and all those things played a role. So it was more fitting to have somebody uh, on the sidelines there. And even then, there was pushback. Sports writers didn't like it. Uh, Some of the sports information directors got together to push back at it. But it just happened that the chairman of the Coaches Association was Bear Bryant. And I met him pretty early on in the process. And when the subject came up in a coach's meeting, how do we get rid of this? Brian said, no, no, we're not, we're not going to get rid of it. I like it. And that was, that was pretty much the end of that. So, you know, another lucky break, another purely circumstantial element that went into my evolution, but it helps to create my perspective for teaching communications 490 at the University of North Carolina.
0: You got that title, right? Yep, there you go. And I see a masterclass from you, Jim, somewhere down the line as well on that. You've already referenced this, but it was back in 1974 while in graduate school. I guess you could call it an America's Got Talent type of search. You could call it The Voice. You could call it American Idol. A talent search for ABC came about, and they saw this very good-looking young guy who could be somebody that people could relate to. And that person was Jim Lampley. And boy, you didn't disappoint, did you, Jim?
2: Well, uh, I'm happy to hear you say that. And, uh, I, you know, I, I did wind up working at ABC Sports for 13 years off of that particular platform. But at the beginning, I was screened out of the process. I mean, I was, I was screened out uh, very early on from among the 432 candidates because they wanted somebody 18 to 22 and I was already 25. They wanted somebody who was in undergraduate school, and I was already in graduate school. They wanted somebody who had done no broadcasting whatsoever, who was completely fresh and unformed with regard to that. And I had done pregame and postgame coaches shows and various other things of that nature with Dean Smith and Bill Dooley uh, here in Chapel Hill. So in a variety of different ways, I didn't fit the profile of what they wanted to do. And and then. Spring turned to summer and fall was approaching and they were getting into position to try to make a choice. Um, And Rune Arledge uh, wound up being a little bit discomfited with the notion of putting somebody on the air on a network telecast who had never had any broadcasting experience whatsoever. And he asked the staff people who were involved in this, did you talk to anybody who's actually been in front of a microphone? And they said, yeah. And, you know, actually, we did talk to one guy who has been in front of a microphone. And by the way, a lot of things have happened. And you're about to hire him to go to work in program planning, which is what oh. I wanted to do. Wow. I, was, I, I was headed for the network to work, learning how to negotiate for and buy the rights to the crazy wide world of sports events that I wound up covering two or three years later. Uh, and, and I was really excited about that because that was where all my graduate school courses were leading. I was I was taking graduate school courses in business and organizational elements because the guy who ran the radio station in Chapel Hill had said to me the year before, Jim, you're really good at all this on-air stuff. And I can tell that you really like all this on-air stuff that you're doing. But I do want to warn you, if you get totally infatuated with being on the air, you could wind up at age 46 carrying equipment in New Bern. Well, I had seen New Bern during a political campaign. 46 sounded ancient to me. I kind of switched my profile and made all my graduate school courses about business and organization. So I was perfectly set up to be the program planning guy. And at the last minute, August 8th, they called me up on the phone and said, well, we're kind of looking at a different scenario here. Can you go do this audition interview with a guy named George Myra. And I'm thinking to myself, they couldn't find anybody else in the country who knows more about George Myra. I mean, this is supposed to happen. So I went down to Birmingham and I did the interview with George Myra. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they chose me for that. But the network and I were both headed in an entirely different direction until less than a month before the first
0: game. Did Rune and you ever have a conversation later on about, that time period and you certainly weren't carrying equipment you were leading the show by the time you were at abc i was i was the
2: the second or third face that you saw on the air when the when the show came on the air with other
0: legendary and and please talk about the other legendary people you've worked with well um
2: that was the first year that keith jackson was the a-game primary play-by-play commentator replacing Chris Schenkel, who had been the A-game commentator for years and years and years before him. Uh, They owed something to Keith Jackson. The network did, because you may recall that in the first year of Monday Night Football, 1971, Keith was in that booth with uh, Don Meredith and Howard Cosell. And Arledge had made a difficult decision that that personality match wasn't nearly as good as if they put Frank Gifford in that play-by-play position. So here we are two and a half, three years later, and Keith is still burning inside uh, with his resentment about having been taken off of Monday night football and justifiably. So he was a far more skilled play-by-play man uh, than Frank Gifford. I love them both, but there was a difference. Uh, So at the end of the day, now Rune realizes CBS is coming after Keith. He made, he needs to incentivize Keith to stay at ABC and, Schenkel has had decades in the sun, so to speak, Uh, and Rune takes Keith Jackson to dinner and says, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. You will become the A-game voice on college football. So it was uh, Keith and Bud Wilkinson in the booth. I mean, my mother was a huge admirer of Bud Wilkinson. I'd heard about him every college football season of my life. Uh, There was another sideline guy that first year whose name was Don Tollison. He was the He was the candidate whom the staff people had uh, focused on from the very beginning of the process. They knew they were going to hire Don Tollefson and ruin it. The end of the day had said, well, can't we have two? Uh, And, and that way, you know, later in the season, we can split them up and send them to separate games. And that's, that's ultimately what wound up happening. And of course, the idea was that um, there would be a different one every year. And so at the end of the first season, Don and I would go off and do something else, and then somebody else would come in and be the college-age reporter. And at that point, I still thought I was going to get the program planning job. And they had told me, in January, you can go sit in a cubicle and listen to uh, two executives named John Martin and Jim Spence as they school you in how to buy these rights and stuff like that. And um, and I wound up going to the uh, National Football Foundation Hall of Fame dinner at the Waldorf Astoria in early uh, December, and I looked across our table, the ABC Sports table, and I saw a guy whom I had known from his law school experience here in Chapel Hill, a guy named Bob Greenway. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is Bob Greenway doing here? Uh, I, I, I don't know of any attachment between him and, and ABC Sports. And eventually, as the evening went on, I walked around the table, tapped him on the shoulder. We had a big reunion. He got up and hugged me, et cetera, et cetera. I said, why are you sitting at our table? He said, well, I've got a great job. I'm coming to work in January with John Martin and Jim Spence uh, to work in program planning. And I spent the whole night, I mean, steaming, not sleeping, uh, driving myself crazy in the Warwick Hotel across the street from ABC on 6th Avenue. And finally, I went to the office of Chuck Howard, Senior Vice President of Production, producer of the college football telecast. And I started raging and yelling, you know, you guys have betrayed me. You've given my job away, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Chuck said, "Jim, calm down." Did you really think? Did you really think that you were going to fly around the country first class all fall, go into college bars and be recognized in every college town in America, have people yell your name from the stands so that you can wave back and say hello to them and stuff like that? Did you really think after all that? that you were going to come sit in a cubicle for $1,500 a month, taking paperwork instructions from John Martin and Jim Spence. To get a hold of yourself. You are going to have a career here. I'm going to start assigning you to a uh, wide world of sports shows within the next month or two. You're going to do another season of college football next fall. You're going to go to the winter Olympics in Innsbruck next year as a feature reporter. Calm down. And, and I did. Uh, and all of those things happened. So eventually they started keeping their promises to me, uh, which was good. And as for Rune, that's the other great part of it. Um, They interviewed 432 people for the college football reporter position. They didn't bother to recognize that I was from Hendersonville, North Carolina. Rune's parents lived in Hendersonville, North Carolina. My mother was in his mother's bridge club. Uh, I had caddied for his father at the Hendersonville Country Club. So, you know, I kept this under my hat. I never said a word to any of them. It wasn't until I was in New York a week and a half before the first telecast, learning how to use an air travel card and uh, and fill out an expense report um, that I ran into. Uh, the guy who was teaching me how to fill out the expense report said, you know, a lot of people here who haven't met Rune Arledge, when you meet him, they'll probably be in the restroom. I went upstairs before leaving the building to get my bag and went into the men's room. And there he was. And uh, and so I met Rune Arledge just exactly the way Bob Apter told me I would meet him. And uh, as we were washing our hands and getting ready to leave the men's room, I looked at him. I said, so how's your dad? And he gave me this, you know, like floored, curious expression and said, why would you ask me something like that? I said, well, I guess nobody told you, but I'm from Hendersonville, North Carolina. And I used to caddy. For your dad up at uh, the golf course, and the famous red face turned white, and he said, "Don't ever tell anybody that. Don't ever, ever, ever tell a single soul, particularly anybody related to college football or a writer, that truth. We keep that to ourselves." Now the story can be told. Wow. They accident they accidentally hired a guy who had caddied for Runarage's father.
0: That's unbelievable. And, yes. and it was told in the bathroom, too. So at that time, even even today's world, maybe it wouldn't have been captured. Uh, somebody would have captured him on their on their watch. Or on... it's, it's like a movie scene, OK? I mean, I, I, Bob Apter
2: had told me downstairs, there are people who've worked here for years and haven't met Rune Arledge. When you meet him, you'll meet him in the restroom. <laughs> I got on the elevator to go from the 16th to the 28th floor to gather my bag from a woman named Phyllis Colonna, who sat at the front desk. I said, let me use the men's room before I go. And there he was. And, and do, we, do we know why
0: he was always in the restroom?
2: Well, I didn't say he was always there. He just happened to be there at that particular <laughs> okay. moment. I don't think he, I don't think he was always there. I think this is just this is just yet another element of the chain of destiny that you know that we've established earlier on in the interview. Uh, something was going to happen to me, regardless of what obstacles might be perceived, and that was yet another part of the chain.
0: What an amazing experience it had to be for Jim Lampley to work with the great Keith Jackson covering college football on ABC Sports.
2: And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Keith Jackson. I'll be calling the play in today's ballgame from Ohio Stadium in Columbus. Joe Paterno, the head coach at Penn State University, whose Nittany Lions are going to the Cotton Bowl New Year's Day, will be
1: joining us as our analyst and commentator, and Jim Lampley will be detailing us from the field. So we have an afternoon of what college football is all about, I think. The Michigan Wolverines 10-0, and 0. Ohio State 9-1, and 1. the Buckeyes losing to Michigan
2: State 16-13. to 13. It's the kind of a week that you could really get yourself a set of white knuckles if you were a partisan to either one of these teams, because the interest, the fever, if you will, is so fervent it's almost impossible to measure. For example, in Athens, Ohio, at 11 o'clock this morning, Ohio University and Marshall played their
1: football game so their followers and their teams could go home and watch this ball game
0: on television. You can still hear Keith Jackson, Oh, Nelly, Oklahoma and Texas. You know, you you, you just can't forget that. He was the greatest college football announcer when it comes to play-by-play, in my opinion. So it was a great move by ABC, and you got to work with him. And now you're the legend Jim Lampley that we're talking to here on sports jam. I want to talk to you a little bit about since we're here in the New York, New Jersey area, people remember when WFAN started, you were the first host. What do you think about those days? Well, uh, that was yet
2: another amazing coincidence in my life uh, because it was 1987 and um Arledge had been moved out of uh, leadership of the sports division by a new owner at ABC. ABC had been sold to a company called Capital Cities uh, uh, Broadcasting. Capital Cities was a stations group. They put a guy named Dennis Swanson uh, in charge of the sports division. Dennis Swanson arrived at ABC Sports with one basic predilection, which was who is Jim Lampley and how do I get rid of him? Why are we paying him all this money? Uh, So he wanted me out. The first thing he did to try to get rid of me, was to assign me to an open place at ABC, which was ringside of the boxing matches. There was nobody who had inherited from Cosell the role of being the boxing blow-by-blow guy. And I surmise that Dennis Swanson's conclusion was, if I put Lampley in this position, he'll be allergic to the sport. The sport will be allergic to him. It'll be embarrassing to him because he's not Cosell. This is a great way to force Jim Lampley to leave the network. So uh, I'm now a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame and I owe that to an executive who assigned me to boxing in an attempt to get rid of me. At the same moment, I had done some talk radio here and there, but I didn't have a particular post and a guy named Jeff Smullian, brilliant radio executive from Indianapolis, had decided that he wanted to pioneer the idea of a 24-hour-a-day sports talk radio uh, format. So he bought an existing signal in New York and uh, set it up as WFAN, uh, the first 24-hour-a-day sports talk radio station. And he wanted a name broadcaster to take over uh, leadership in terms of one of the time slots. I didn't want the early morning time slot. Uh, ultimately, Don Imus wound up op- occupying that slot over a period of time. Uh, but I took 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. happened to be the, si- the time slot within which the signal came on the air. So I was the first talk show host ever on a 24-hour-a-day sports talk radio station. And um, the concept sounded so extreme at the time that I wrote about a five-minute manifesto to read when I came on the air describing what was going to happen here. And it was full of absurdities, okay? Like callers will create trades and callers will sell franchises and uh, guests will insult uh, famous athletes in such a way that feuds will begin. I made all of this stuff up and it was meant to be reducto ad absurdum. And of course, everything happened. All the things that I suggested within this absurd manifesto would happen did happen eventually as the result of sports talk radio. In fact, I remember even saying there'll be three or four of these stations in the Salt Lake market talking about the jazz 24 hours a day. That happened. Uh, so. So, yes, I, uh, I spent uh, several months. Now, I went on the air July one. July 2, I went into Swanson's office and surrendered my contract at ABC Sports. So I was hired partially because of my profile at ABC Sports. And by 24 hours after I did the first show, I no longer had that profile uh, at ABC Sports. But Smully didn't mind about that. He liked what I had done the first day. So I stayed on the air at WFAN. Then I wound up going to the West Coast to work for CBS at KCBS TV and working for CBS Sports. And I continued doing the New York radio show, which we now called the Hollywood Satellite Show. I had a producer who would come in every morning and send me the New York Daily News and New York Post and even New York Times write-ups on the preceding nights, hockey games, basketball games, whatever had happened, so that I could sound current to the New York audience talking about uh, New York sports. But of course, the idea was to talk about the entire sports world. My favorite thing that I did, uh, early on that first year, US Open tennis is coming up, uh at flushing and i told my um my producer a guy named uh russ malahan i said russ get me a star tennis player for tomorrow morning So i get up the following morning and he has sent me uh, a message uh on on the phone and it says that uh we've got the number 22 ranked tennis player in the world michael pernforce and i'm like number 22 <laughs> <laughs> i wanted stefan edberg you know when, what are we talking about here so I went on the air and totally destroyed Russ Malahan for the whole first half hour of the show. Over and over, Russ, in his brilliance as a producer, has acquired for us the number 22 tennis player in the world. We don't know what the first 21 were doing, you know, and I would speculate on what some of the higher ranked guys were doing, what the 11th ranked guy might be doing, what the 14th ranked guy might be doing. And of course, Pernfors was from Sweden. When he came on the air, I mentioned that he was from Sweden and I pointed out that he played tennis at the University of Georgia. And I asked him, Can you teach us how to play, how about them dogs, or how about how to say, how about them dogs in Swedish? And he did. And so that became a daily slogan on the show. Callers would call in and say, because everybody wanted to be able to say, how about them dogs in Swedish. And Pern Forest became the official tennis player of the show. Uh, and he was on over and over and over, uh, you know, so the, the, you know, sports talk radio, every show has a life of its own, a culture of its own. Things go in various different directions. People ask me, you know, well, why is Jim Rome so successful? And I said, Jim Rome has an amazing ear. He hears and understands what exists in the culture at large that he can pull in. And and make a part of his show. And he made uh, he made a great deal of money and fan base off of that for years and years and years. And I'm sure you do it, too.
0: You know, so I have you to blame when I hear people calling up and saying, yeah, I think we can get Mike Trout. Let's give our third and fourth worst pitchers in the minors. And I think they'll go for Mike Trout. Those crazy trades—it started with you, Jim. I, I have you to blame for that.
2: <laughs> well, I don't. I don't. I think you have the callers to blame for that, but I encourage them. <laughs> you know, I, I certainly told them that that was an available opportunity for them, and they do do it. Yes.
0: You talked about you know writing out your manifesto kind of thing there, and when it comes to you know you've done some amazing work with voicing documentaries like the Marathon and things like that. What is it about this voice? that has you know, become iconic, and who gets the credit for shaping that voice? Was it just there all along for Jim Lampley?
2: You know, I, I, I love you desperately for saying that my voice is iconic. I don't think of it that way. Uh, I do. I've, I, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I've never thought of my voice as uh, a huge asset in my career, but a lot of people do share your point of view. And, you know, pretty frequently somebody will tap me on the shoulder in the vegetable uh, department at Whole Foods and say, uh, I just love to hear your voice. I mean, will you please say something to me? That stuff like that. So I think if there's anything there, um, it is that my mother going back to the formative influence of my life was uh, a stickler for grammar and diction. She spoke the language correctly and she wanted me to speak the language correctly. And she wanted me to have a big flexible vocabulary. And, and she wanted me to be disciplined uh, about the way that I used it.
1: Legend has it the first marathon was run inadvertently by the Greek messenger Pheidippides in 490 BC. He ran from the town of Marathon to Athens bearing triumphant news of Athenian victory in battle. His cry heard, Pheidippides collapsed and died of exhaustion, having set the example of courage and stamina that would forever mark this race. 24 centuries later in 1896, the first modern Olympic games were held, appropriately, in Athens. And here again, the race now called Marathon would end with a cry of victory for the Greeks as one of their own, Spiridon Lewis, crossed the finish line
2: first. And sometimes I drive my own children and grandchildren crazy uh correcting syntax and things like that here and there but i do think there's a value to to being right and to um observing all the rules in the way that we use the english language and i to this day i i try to be as careful as i can about that and beyond that the rest of it is just you know whatever the universe gave me in terms of physical wherewithal i remember hearing my calls of high school football games at WCHL radio in Chapel Hill on tape Chapel Hill versus Oxford or Chapel Hill versus Henderson in football and thinking, oh, my God, I sound like an 11-year-old kid. I sound terrible. Who would want to listen to that? But other people were saying, oh, my God, you're great. That's really good. So you're never going to hear exactly what you want to hear in your own voice. But I'm pleased with how well I've done with what my, my mother taught me to do.
0: Truly has been an unbelievable career. Before we let you go, I, I did want you to uh, have a chance to talk about Atticus Entertainment that you founded, and and the other side of, of Jim Lampley behind, you know, with the camera behind the the, the talent scene. Well, uh,
2: I think of myself as a storyteller, and um, the influence that we have not touched on up to this point is that uh, my my mother and my Paternal grandmother, my my father's mother, um, both centralized me in their lives, and they competed for my affection and attention. And the biggest way in which they competed was storytelling. Both of them were inveterate, nonstop storytellers, uh, and they were both great at. It. Uh, you know, they could have been Pat Conroy. They could they could have written Southern novels. Both of them and. Um, my grandmother in particular could tell the same stories over and over and over and change a detail or change a word or change an observation here and there and reinvent it. And, and you would always want to listen because she was so good at telling those stories. And my mother used her storytelling capacity to constantly connect me back to my father uh, and and also to compete with Grandma Mid's view of the family. My grandmother had one view of the family, mother had another view of the family, Storytelling was the way that they sort of uh, went at each other in that regard. So it's, it's naturally in me, it's an inherited trait to love telling stories. Sometimes my wife will say, get to the point. And I'll think, no, every detail is important. You know, We have to touch every little rock in the stream along the way or else the story isn't the same. And by the way, the listeners always side with me instead of my wife, but she's heard them too many times. So uh, I was living in Hollywood. Uh, I had done lots of things in broadcasting. I was socializing and playing golf with movie stars and movie producers and writers and people of that nature in Hollywood. Uh, And I started thinking, okay, I belong in this world. Uh, And several people, various people, substantive people had said to me, you need to have a production company. You need to be in a position to take all the stories, you know, and the ones that you learn and activate them as projects. So I did. Uh, And of course, it's it's the most difficult and frustrating thing in the world. Uh, But but I did get some things done uh, along the way. I produced feature length documentaries. Uh, I produced uh, one uh, mock doc feature film of which I'm very proud. Uh, And on and on, Uh, you know, it's it's gone on intermittently and all of those careers are intermittent. Um, The very great Bernie Brillstein, founder of uh, the famous Brillstein Gray Agency, once told me, he said, Jim, life as a Hollywood producer is a daily process of agony and regret, only occasionally interrupted by very temporary success. And and he's right. That's pretty much what being a producer is all about.
0: Short quiz, and I promise, short. Best Olympic event you ever covered?
2: Well, um, obviously, Al Michaels and Ken Dryden called the, the game. Uh, but I was sent to uh, the United States uh, hockey victory over the Soviet Union, February 22, 1980, to recruit and perform an on air interview that would button up our telecast later that night because as you know and some people don't know the game was played at five o'clock on Friday afternoon network was not on the air at that time millions of Americans still believe to this day that they watched it live that night they didn't they watched a videotape replay Arledge at the moment when the game was tied 2-2 at the end of the first period had called me in an edit bay and said what are you doing I told him he said drop that Get over to the hockey arena and get inside to do an interview. And the last thing I said to him before he hung up the phone was, "Rune, I don't have the right credential." And he said, "You'll get in." Clunk. Uh, so I went over to the I went over to the arena and I did get in uh, and I watched the last two periods from a camera platform. And I went downstairs thinking, "All right, how do I get Mike Rizzioni to do an interview with me?" And he was the last player out of the dressing room. We happened to have the same agent. I yelled at him amid the the crazy cacophony of that scene. He turned around, he he recognized my voice, wound up uh, finishing his dinner with him that night and interviewing him on the street. But the bottom line is I saw live, what I still believe is the greatest sports event in American history. Uh, And eventually I was part of it and, Over the years since then, many times I have run into Mike Ruzzioni and Jimmy Craig at Olympic uh, occasions and other occasions. And every time I'll lean over to say to Mike, because he than me, I'll lean over and say to Mike, you know, through the miracle of videotape, you are now the leading goal scorer in the history of hockey. (laughs) And And Mike, every time, says, Lance, keeps going in, doesn't it? And yes, it keeps going in, and it's still a miracle.
0: Second question is, you said Lamps. Who calls you James Lampley instead of Jim?
2: Who calls me James? Uh, My wife does sometimes. Uh, Is that affectionate
0: um, or is that in trouble?
2: Oh, no, that's affectionate. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's absolutely affectionate. She knows that I prefer it. Uh, There there aren't many people who know that I would really prefer to be called James. But, you know, those few who understand it uh, that's good. Emmanuel Stewart learned to call me James, just as I learned to call him Emmanuel. Everybody in the world who's being familiar and loving with Emmanuel would call him Manny. That wasn't really his preference. Uh, he made clear to me that he preferred to be Emmanuel. And by the way, he's the closest adult male friend I've ever had. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I don't know who you might be referring to there. The answer is that there are some but mostly they are people very, very close to me.
0: I was just curious because it's James Lampley, you know, they're on the screen with you and it's like, okay, that means something to you. So, you know, so a lot of times I'll have Douglas and only people will hear me say Doug. And mom is the only one who calls me Douglas. And the final question may be a little bit difficult for you to answer. You were only five when you lost your dad, you talked about, but if you had a chance to sit down with dad now, what would you like to ask that or talk to him about?
2: Um, I'm chewing my gum here to uh, to fight off tears. Uh, I said back to you at the beginning that the single narrative storytelling line, line I've used most in my whole life is um, my father died when I was five years old. And I think at the end of the day, if I could talk to him now, Uh, I would thank him for, um, for being a hero to me. You know, I'm father to four children and stepfather to others. And I know all of the difficulties and the pitfalls of parenting. When your father dies, when you're five years old, you've been given an ironic gift, which is that I never had an argument with him. I never had a fight with him. I never had differences with him over anything, politics, society, relationships, nothing of that exists in my life. To me, he is an absolutely unimpeachable, iconic hero, a war hero, a decorated war hero, club champion at the golf course, course record holder at the golf course, uh, owner of a car dealership in Hendersonville. He's all those things to me, and there is nothing negative in it. So, I think at the end of the day, I would I would just say to him, thanks. Thanks for giving me an identity that I was proud of. I am his namesake. He was James Bratton Lampley. I'm James Clifford Lampley. Uh, and thanks for remaining in my mind the way you have all these years because I never ever cover a sports event or do a sports story without thinking of him and, and of his devotion to those subjects.
0: I had a much different experience. I lost my dad at the age of 90 in uh, May of 2020, but he's the reason I do what I do. So I, I can relate James to what you're talking about there. Uh, so the final question uh, in the quiz is that you've done so much, you know, with HBO for all those years, HBO world championship boxing, the day that you heard it was over, were there tears?
2: Yeah. Um, HBO is very important to me. Uh, I worked for virtually every commercial network that you can name. I worked for ABC, NBC, CBS, Turner. uh, And and I I had many, many uh, deep experiences in commercial television. Somewhere along the way, particularly once I started calling boxing matches and once it was clear that the institutional nature of boxing was that it was headed toward being a premium pay cable sport that HBO and Showtime were going to dominate that. Uh, I knew that at some point I would want to be sitting ringside for one of those two entities. Interestingly, uh, the first fight I called outside of ABC Sports was for Showtime. Uh, I called a doubleheader involving uh, Evander Holyfield uh, in Saint-Tropez, on the beach in Saint-Tropez. It's the only boxing telecast ever with live nudity, uh, and, and I, you know, that, that might've made it look like I was headed toward working at Showtime. Uh, pretty shortly after that, I signed a contract uh, with HBO and wound up spending uh, more than 30 years calling fights and Wimbledon tennis, by the way, at HBO. I did 12 years of Wimbledon tennis when those telecasts were five or six hours a day, no commercial, and my uh, expert commentators were Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, uh, some of the greatest people in the history of the sport, sat with me and uh, and called those tennis matches. So that is just as revered an experience for me and as fundamental an experience for me uh, as was calling the fights. And there's a difference when you can say whatever you want to say on Saturday night uh, or on Tuesday afternoon at Wimbledon, and you know for sure that regardless of whether it's controversial or negative or disputable or whatever, nobody at Dancer Fitzgerald Sample who represents Chevrolet is going to be picking up a phone to call your boss to complain about what you did on the air. That was never going to happen at HBO. And I had had that experience elsewhere. So it was always thrilling to me to know that the content was between me and the network, that was it. And and no other outside party would participate in adjudicating whether that was uh, right or that was wrong. And then you put together the people for whom I worked at uh, HBO Sports, uh, Seth Abraham, Ross Greenberg, ultimately the very great Richard Plepler, the greatest television executive I've ever known. Um, That was just uh, an incomparable familial experience for me. uh, And I can only hope that as I continue forward in the boxing world that I'll feel the same love and reverence for the people who pay me to call fights now that I did for decades for HBO.
0: And as we've been doing this interview, it's been going through my mind, Jim or James, whatever you prefer, but I'll go with James right now, is that those simple calls that we remember.
1: It's over. over. Mike Tyson has been knocked out.
0: When I think of Al Michaels, 1980. I think of Howard Cosell.
1: Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier!
0: Down goes Frazier. Very simple, but we remember them forever. And there's probably going to be another fight coming up on Triller Fight Club that we will remember James Lanaplee saying, Oh, I remember back in 2021 in his return to boxing that he had this amazing cult. As we leave uh, this sports jam, what do you want to tell us more about your return to the ring?
2: Um, that, that I'll be looking to be understated. Uh, just <laughs> as you're talking about there, that I'll be looking to continue to remember that the picture is preeminent, that many times uh, the picture tells the story in such a graphic and emotionally indelible way that you can't enhance it with something that you say. Uh, and I'll remember that, uh, uh, the the great underlying satisfaction of this business is to tell the truth. And when you can see the truth and tell the truth, you've done everything you possibly can to help the audience appreciate, enjoy, and understand the sports event. But ultimately, you're just a conduit. It's between them and the event. I'll always try to remember that.
0: One thing I want to happen after this show is Spike Doyle to come up to James Lampley, your father, and we know in a better place. And they shake hands and say, well done. You've done. Probably happening wonderful. right now. I, Probably I,
2: happening right now.
0: I certainly I hope have so. a,
2: I have a huge belief in the connectivity of the universe and you could not have experienced all the things that I have experienced without that being the case. You, you know, there's a destiny. There's a plan somewhere. Me sitting at ringside to call Tyson Douglas. <laughs> Who else? Among Us, was still around from having been at the Miami Beach Convention Center on February 25, 1964. The universe saw to that.
0: There is a reason why he was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2015, four-time Emmy winner, film producer, and one of the legendary voices, ABC Sports, HBO, NBC, Showtime. It doesn't matter where he's at, but now he's at Triller. And the Triller Fight Club is where he's going to begin his multi-fight deal with the historic June 19th Triller Fight Club card at Miami's Lone Depot Park, which will feature both the men's and women's undisputed world title fights for the first time. What an honor and privilege it has been to have James Lampley on Sports Jam. By the way, Mr. Doyle,
2: I'm sure you've already observed this in your head. The very first live prize fight I ever attended was in Miami. My comeback
0: on Triller is in Miami. The legacy continues. Thanks so yep. much. Appreciate it. My privilege. Sports Jam is a WBGO news production. You can check out all the podcasts by going to wbgo.org sportsjam sports jam. Find sports jam with Doug Doyle on iTunes or on the NPR list of podcasts. Special thanks going out this week to Joe Favorito for hooking us up with Jim Lampley. To our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game.